in order to establish ourselves, <clears throat> try to establish ourselves in that settled place where I think we were 20 minutes ago. Let's uh, sit for a minute, and what we'll have to do is meditate fast. So, <laughs> because the truth is that we are only uh, one mind moment away from settled and present. It doesn't take a long time to get here. So really what I wanted to talk about tonight was um, keeping faith and sustaining courage in difficult times. And all the things that, um, that we do to keep ourselves from becoming uh, too melancholy and too cynical and too dispirited. I um, uh, heard my friend... Uh, Sharon Salzberg being uh, interviewed on KGO yesterday morning. Did you get a phone call from one of my daughters who said, hurry up, your friend Sharon is talking to uh, um, Bernie Ward on God Talk. Turn on KGO. So I did. And there was Sharon being interviewed on the radio on a new book on faith and talking about faith and talking about faith being something you do, not something you have. And talking about uh, faith being that quality that somehow, from somewhere in us, says, don't give up hope. Keep on trying. There's something to be gotten. Um, and I had this experience of listening to her, and Sharon's been my friend now for 20-some years, and was my, my, one of my first teachers, certainly is my meta teacher. And uh, we are friends and colleagues, and we teach together a lot, and we are together a lot. So it wasn't as if she was telling me anything that was news. I mean, I didn't really know what she was saying. But I was listening to her say things that I absolutely trust to be true, that if we really look deeply within ourselves, we find that our inclination is to goodness. We are happy when we manifest ourselves in kind ways. We can rely on the trustworthy kindness of the human heart. And I found, as I was listening to her, first of all, I was very proud of her, but how it just picked up my mood, listening to the truth and the truth about the goodness of human beings is a tremendous tonic for the mood. I, th I listen to that and I think to myself, the world has got to come out all right because this is true. And collectively, as a world, I keep feeling that we'll all shake ourselves suddenly as if out of a dream and we'll say, hey, we have been really not paying attention. We could share more. We could take care of each other better. If we shared more and took care of each other better, everyone would feel better, and then we'd be nicer to each other. It's not a simplistic view, I think. It's really the only view that sustains me when I think about the difficulty that the world is in. 
When I came here tonight, uh, I met Roger, who's the new assistant events coordinator here. And we just talked for a little bit um, in, in uh, his office in the back. And I could hear the meta chant uh, playing. If you come early enough, you hear that lovely chant of the uh, woman in Sri Lanka chanting that meta chant. And um, essentially, it says, may all beings be happy. And it goes through all a list of beings, my relatives, my friends, the people I know, the people I don't know, the devas, the, the angelic presences, all the presences here and not here. May they all be happy. And it just goes over and over and over again. And I said to Roger, you know, that that particular CD was such a sustaining force for me in the days following 9-11 last year. You know, I was, I was here a lot in the days right afterwards. But when I was home and when I was alone and when I was in my car, I played it over and over and over again. And um, it didn't make uh, what happened less terrible. What happened was terrible. What happened wasn't only that day. What happened is what ha was happening up until that day. The pain in the world and the ways in which people cannot live comfortably with each other. The pain since then in the world in many places because the ways that people have not learned to live comfortably with each other. <coughs> but it was such a uh, steadier of the mind that this is really the intention of the heart. That this is really what human beings could do. We have greeds and lusts, all of us, and angers because we have nervous systems. And we get confused because we have nervous systems. But we can get confused. I can get confused and angry and lustful and needy and still have space enough to decide this would be an unwise thing to do and not do it. You know, the Buddha said that this human realm was the best possible realm to get born into. Do you know that? In all the realms. Because in the higher realms, in the angelic realms, it's so lovely and there's no pain or suffering at all that there's no work to be done and nobody gets any place and just hang out there forever, but there's not much action. And in the lower realms, it's too uncomfortable and nobody can make themselves at home long enough to really pay attention with any kind of clarity. But here, in this human realm, we have just the right mixture, the Buddha said, 10,000 joys and 10,000 woes, to keep the pot stirring. Just enough of a mixture to keep us in the game, wanting more, and being pained by the vicissitudes of being alive in a life and a body. There's no way that any of us are going to do this whole life without being separated from every single thing that we loved, or they from us and outgrowing our bodies and having them get frailer and used her. If you were here in the very beginning, you probably saw the little maneuver we had to do to get the pillows exactly right, because I need now one and a half pillows on my way to two pillows. And the folks who've set up the room know who has which pillow to accommodate their body at which stage. And at some point, I'll sit in a chair, I guess, and it'll be okay, because I won't be able to sit this way anymore. But to accommodate to the vicissitudes of a changing body and changing life, all the things that are the normal things that people have to accommodate to in a life, we have to accommodate to all the losses that we didn't anticipate. We have to accommodate also to the pain that's extra in life that we uh, 
feel inflicted on us or that we inflict purposely out of confusion or inadvertently also out of confusion. My grandfather used to say he used to precede it with a very huge sigh, take a big sigh in and out, and then he'd say, it's very hard to be a person. (laughs) But it is very hard to be a person. I mean, what he meant is it's really hard to be a decent person. It's really hard to come up against all the challenges of life and keep your heart okay, keep your heart good. I think about all the things that I do to try to keep my heart good. Sitting is one of them. Sitting is one of them. Making prayers for my friends is one of them. Making prayers for everyone, not my friends, people I don't know. We do that, you know. The metta resolves our prayers. May all beings be peaceful and happy. May all beings have enough to eat. May all have ease of well-being. In the doing of that, don't you feel good from that? We feel good because in that moment we are connected to everyone else. I think we feel um, alive when we're connected to everyone else. Actually, I think that that's what this is about. It's about connecting ourselves in our hearts with how we intuit other people are and other beings are. Slowing down in the way that we do is a way of really uh, touching that intuitive part of our mind that does that connecting. It's a linear part of our mind that's rushing forward and getting our work done that keeps us isolated, I think. And the intuitive part of our mind that allows us to get it, that there are people out there sharing this life with us. It's inventive, too, that mind. And I have a lot of faith in the fact that the inventiveness of the intuitive mind, which is what we contact when we make sabbaticals in the life like this, that that inventiveness is going to figure out a better way to do the life. I have a great hope that human beings still are going to somehow put it together. At the moment that um, the day is following 9-11, some day of considerable despair, I was talking to one of my friends, was a low point for me. And I remember saying to my friend, what if there's too much greed and anger and confusion in the world? Maybe it's not redeemable. Maybe we should just all give up. And he looked at me and he said, in the kindest way possible, he said, that's not an option. (laughs) And it was the sweetest thing to say, and I really got it. And what I appreciated in that moment is that it's true for me, at least, and I imagine for you, that there are moments of tremendous despair. And one of the principal tools that I use as a booster up of my own heart and mind, in addition to my sitting, in addition to my meditating, in addition to my prayer life, (coughs) is I talk to my friends. I think enormously important, how enormously important a sense of community is. I look at all of you and I think, I wonder how many of you come every Monday night. I wonder if you meet people here. I wonder if you talk to people here. I hope you do. I think you do. Seems like you do at the break. (laughs) I talk to my friends. 
on Wednesday mornings when I teach here, uh, quite a lot of people are here, not quite so many, but quite a lot of people. And we know each other for a long time. And sometimes, I noticed a few weeks ago, we had the most extraordinary experience. I did anyway. It was a morning of particular despair. It was right after, um, was that on the Wednesday following the Monday night on which there uh, was a very large bomb dropped on a, an apartment building in Gaza. And uh, a lot of people got killed, a lot of them children. And I'd gotten an email in the mail from someone I knew in Israel talking about the despair that people felt about what was going on. And the despair and the shame and the humiliation, which I felt as well. It was important for me to have a group of people to say that to. And it was so encouraging for me to discover that somehow after I'd taught, and I'd been teaching about this is what happens when people don't see clearly. They don't see a better way or a better end. And one by one, people in the room started to say, you know, there's this hopeful thing happening, and tonight over in such and such a place they're having a dialogue of reconciliation, and over here something else is happening. And what I really took from that was that I have a sense that when we are as a community, that we hold each other up so much, that we intuitively know when someone else's spirits are flagging, and we don't have to say, hold me up. We do hold each other up. I think if we uh, were to have the universal mantra that might change the whole world, it might be, hold my hand. And we'd all reach out and hold somebody's hand. Somebody said to me, my friend Mary, who's been my spiritual buddy for 30 years, said to me that uh, she wrote her uh, doctoral thesis years ago on... Uh, a Scottish philosopher, his name was John McMurray, and uh, he had a theory of holding hands. He had a, an image that Mary told me about. And all these years I've been thinking about this image. It gives me a lot of good feeling. She said, when we're born, hands catch us. And uh, when we die, hands do something with our body. They either put us in the ground or they do whatever is appropriate. And in between, we get passed along hand to hand. And I think about that, you know. When you hold a baby, you put your finger and it holds, it holds your finger like that. And then it gets a little bigger and you go for a walk with it. I was walking with my youngest grandchild the other day. And I was realizing she's a quite small little girl for two and a half. But we are small people. So I had my hand out. And uh, she, she, she was, I was realizing, walking along, having a conversation with someone with an incredibly small hand that I was holding. And it was walking on its own feet and, t and having a conversation. And I realized, as it was just such a moment of, of realizing that my hand was down and hers up, and that if I get to last longer, our hands will move up, her hand will get bigger, and she'll come up to my side. And if I get to last long enough, I'll be holding on to her, and she'll be walking me somewhere. And that somewhere or another, we pass each other hand to hand. And if we all knew it, we would be so careful with each other, that we are really, like we say to each other, I'm in your hands, you know, that... Um, Give me your hand. Think about it a lot. We could just get that about each other. That the hands pass through our own families, to other families, be away. So what I really wanted to talk about, I should probably look in the notes and talk about them. I wanted to talk about... Um, 
the ways in which I think faith gets sustained, at least in me. I uh, read a cooking, uh, I, I read uh, this week's New Yorker this morning, very early. So there's a wonderful article by uh, Al, uh, Adam Gopnik, who I like very much, talking about um, the inventiveness of chefs. It's a, it's a New Yorker issue on cooking. And uh, talking about, uh, it's an article about six of the premier current new up-and-coming wonderful chefs in New York and of going to the New York farmer's market early in the morning with two of these chefs to pick out the ingredients for the day. And she said they're, he said they're all disciples of uh, Chez Panisse. <laughs> <laughs> they're all California cooks. They all know that the way to cook is with local ingredients that you personally went and got out of the farmer's market. So he said that he'd been to the farmer's market with the cooks and they walk around and they look at things. And uh, he said, uh, one of them said uh, to him about looking, he said, uh, expertise is not seeing all there is. Expertise is knowing what you're looking for. I thought, hmm, that could be the koan for tonight. Do I believe that? I would have said about mindfulness that it has something to do with seeing all that there is, like seeing all the points of view. If someone had said, expertise is seeing all there is, I'd say, yes, that's it. I would say, uh, that sounds just like the third patriarch of Zen. To know the truth only cease to cherish opinions. I would have quoted that. That would have been my, my uh, scripture verse to quote, to substantiate that. That if you cling to an opinion and you have an idea of what you're looking for because you have a preformed view of what would be good, then you don't get to see all the other things around it that might be good because you're so busy looking for what you think is good. So I could have done a whole riff on the other way. But as expertise is not that. Expertise is not seeing all there is. It's seeing what you're looking for. So I thought, hmm, okay, I have to make a new thing. First of all, I could make it that I don't believe it. But I could also make it that expertise is seeing all the possible views, but it's also in the middle of them seeing what you're looking for, because what I'm really looking for, I decided, I mulled this over all day in the way of koans, is I'm looking for what in what I'm seeing is going to be the redemptive moment that's going to pull this up and restore hope to this moment. What's the redemptive moment? I read a story this week, a tiny snippet of a story from a new little book on um, mindfulness called Present Moment by James Ishmael Ford. It'll come out, I think, this fall. James Ishmael Ford is a Unitarian minister in uh, Massachusetts, who's also a mindfulness practitioner of many years. Zen practitioner, Zen practitioner, for many years. And has written a book about the um, overlay of uh, his experience, or the, the interpolation of his experience of learning to pay attention in this way and his experience as a UU minister. And he's talking about uh, the way in which being fully present to any moment makes that moment alive, is the redemptive uh, response to that moment. And he tells a story about going to visit a friend, two friends of his. One of the friends is uh, dying of AIDS and uh, really in his bed at that point. 
and he and the partner of the friend are in the bedroom with the person who's dying, who's very weak and very tired. And they're both sitting on the bed, and the person who's dying is quite quiet because he's just lying there and listening. And um, his partner is holding his hand and talking to him in the way that we talk to people who are dying about things that we reminisce about and what we remember about life. He said he was very, very weak. His body was completely wasted. Tundra was sitting with Bob and talking about the good times they had had. He said we had a lot of good times. Bob looked up at him and said, I'm still having a good time. So when 100% into the present, it's 100% redeemed. It's okay, it's just what it is. I thought about looking at what is the redemptive moment. I had quite a a learning around the experience a couple of weeks ago of the uh, miners trapped in the coal mine. Um, I don't often watch television, but friends of mine called and said, look, you have to go watch the television. We stayed up in the middle of the night. How many of you stayed up in the middle of the night, saw them bring the people up out of the mine? Did you see it? I didn't see it. She said, you have to go look. She said, you have to look at the people, their faces when they come up out of the mine and the faces of the people around them when each person comes up. So I went and watched the, the next day a recap of it. But I, I read this, and I read the story of it in uh, the newspaper the next day. And the, the story went with me for until now, actually. I've been thinking about it still all day today, preparing to be here. The... One of the miners was interviewed uh, and told the story of how when the water rushed in and uh, they suddenly realized that they'd have to take high ground and they took high ground and just imagining the scene because it was in total darkness. Um, it was just really even scary to think about in some ways. In all ways, scary to think about. They take high ground. And he reported that he said once we got to high ground and it looked like the waters had stopped because they were pushing in forced air. He said, uh, all of our hearts would be, we all, you know, realized we were breathing very hard and some people, they had a little bit of chest pain, somebody thought maybe they were having a heart attack. He said, probably we were frightened. But he said, after a while we started to breathe more regular, we saw the waters were staying down. He said, and then the first thing we did was we tied ourselves all together so that if, in fact, the waters rose and we became flooded and we died, then the people who looked for us wouldn't have so much trouble finding the bodies. We'd be tied together. And that moved me so much because I think to myself, when the chips are down and our minds are clear and all of the extraneous stuff that fills it up is gone, we actually look out for the well-being of other people. We wonder about how it will be for the people up there to be missing one of our bodies. We tie ourselves together. I later read another description of it where they said, do you know how cold it was down there? It was 50 degrees and they were wet. And they kept shifting themselves around, tied together, so that different parts of them would keep different parts of other people's bodies warm. That's actually, I think, what people do when we're in trouble. We shift around to keep each other warm. We see we really need each other. The piece that really, really moved me 
Oh, really, really moves me. Is somebody reporting in this article said, one of the lunchboxes of one of the miners floated by. He said, and I reached the lunchbox and I opened it and it had a sandwich in it and the sandwich was dry. And he said, and I took a bite and I passed it to my friend. And fundamentally, I think that's what human beings do. When our minds are clear, we share. We take a bite and we pass it to our friends. Someone said, do you have, what do you have faith in, Sylvia? I have faith that when we see clearly, we're really very good. We're generous and we're thoughtful and we're gentle and we look out for each other. We take care of each other. We really get it that this is just such a very small planet and we really have to live here with each other. I think what happens, what happens to me for sure, is I get startled into self-centered preoccupation. And then I think about myself. And when I can think past myself to somebody else, which is what happens when I'm not startled, then the best part of me is available. I share and I'm thoughtful, and I feel like I could make a difference. I think it has to do with connections again. I think when I was listening to Sharon yesterday on the, on the radio, what struck me so much in what she was talking about is how much when I connect with what's the truth about people, I feel uplifted and I... I, I feel um, hopeful about I could make a difference. I never really have understood clearly the difference between spirituality and engaged spirituality, or Buddhism and engaged Buddhism. I think to myself, it makes so much sense to me to say, if I have any degree of clarity of wisdom, I couldn't do anything but engage with it. It is engaged. That to whatever degree I have an insight about the suffering of the world, or anyone has an insight. I think it has to play itself out in trying to make a difference in the world and thinking, what, can I, what am I doing in this moment that's making a difference? I don't think it's an optional thing. I don't think we can say, well, I'm now going to meditate for my own peace of mind. Now I feel peaceful, good, finished, that's it. I don't actually think that that's an option because we don't feel peaceful. I think we feel peaceful, but I think the peaceful is the preview to really seeing And when we really see, we see the trouble that the world is in and the suffering that the world is in. And then when we really pay attention, it's heartbreaking. And then we really have to pay attention to find what's the redemptive moment. And the redemptive moment is when I do something about the heartbreak. I don't think it's possible to say I make myself comfortable. I make myself comfortable so I can really see, so I cannot add to the discomfort or the confusion of the world and do something that'll be really helpful. When I looked at the miners, picture after a while, looked at the picture of uh, the miners all, you know, embracing each other and feeling really good that they were free as we all did, and thinking this is a beautiful picture and story about courage. But I thought to myself later on when I was thinking about it, if I really, really were to look at the picture, do you know mindfulness comes from the um, Pali word sati, and it really means careful looking, careful looking, paying attention. If I really pay attention to that picture, there's a picture hidden in the picture. And so first I look at the picture, I see miners demonstrating tremendous heroism and courage. If I look really into the picture, I think to myself, miners, why in this day and age when we have the technology for clean fuel for the world, why are we endangering people's lives and lungs and health? 
why are there miners 280 feet under the ground? If I really look at the picture, not just the cursory one about this is wonderful, they are out, but look at the numbers of miners who died last year that weren't out, and the numbers of miners whose lungs are jeopardized forever. And I think, why are they in the ground, in the hole there? And I really look at it and I see, well, what are the corporate, um, the corporate gains of the conglomerates? Do you know it's a little mining company, that mining company, but it belongs to a huge, large conglomerate company way up the chain. Those miners earn $40,000 a year for jeopardizing their lives. People on the top of that chain, many, many times that. And why anyway are they there if there are other kinds of fuel? We could change <coughs> and protect people and protect the world. So I could look at that. I could look past the courage story, which lifts up my heart, and see the story of what's happening, which is heartbreaking, which saddens my heart, really breaks it. I can look past that, or I can pick up my eyes and look and see that on my desk, I have the quarterly newsletter from the Rocky Mountain Institute, from Amory Lovins in uh, Boulder, Colorado, talking about the work that he and other people are doing to develop, uh, the, to put out through the media uh, information about the way that we could switch over in a way to clean fuel that in fact would keep a system of free enterprise alive in a way that uh, the mercantile way that the world works would continue to work in a way that everyone will benefit without making villains and without making villains out of everyone and actually recognizing the fact that people have a natural inclination to try to build a better mousetrap and get ahead. And instead of saying it's wrong to want to get ahead, say, listen, we're inventive, and we have this impulse to get ahead, so let's invent something good. Let's do something that'll make a difference. So if I look through the picture of despair and say, some people have not stopped at the level of despair and said, I'll do something. Not one person can do one thing, but one person could do something. Everyone could do something. I think that one of the things that... Uh, I think about is the fact that uh, the connection between meditation and doing something is so clear to me. It's not always clear to people. It seems to sometimes um, to be a kind of quiescent thing, like a retreat from the world, uh, like um, nobody doing anything. A long time ago, I'll, I'll do a test with you. A long, long time ago, maybe 20 or 30 years ago, there was one of the early meetings of uh, meditation and psychotherapy and spirituality in San Francisco in a great big ballroom, probably this size, maybe three or 400 people. George Leonard, who's an Aikido teacher here in Marin County, was the uh, keynote speaker. And uh, he said, uh, how many people here are from California? So a lot of people. Then he said, how many people from this county, that county, west of the Mississippi, east of the Mississippi? So those are the easy demographics. It's like a lie detector test where you ask the easy questions first, everybody gets at ease. Then you say the harder questions, and you say, how many people here have a daily practice that's a body practice? Um, yoga, or Aikido, or running, or working out in the gym? A lot of people put up there. How many people here have a daily body practice? How many people here have a daily uh, contemplative meditative practice? How many people here, 
Let me see if we can get more hands up. How many people have a twice a week contemplative practice? <laughs> Everybody here is so honest, at least we. <laughs> How many people would like to have a daily contemplative practice? Let's do that. <laughs> How many people here voted in the last presidential election? There you go. That really was what he meant to prove, and it's really what I have tremendous faith in that this is not moving us away from the, the imperative to make a difference in the world, but into the imperative to make a difference in the world. And knowing that other people have not given up hope is one of the things that sustains me. You know, in um, um, 1962, probably was, a year after I moved to Marin County, just after my fourth child was born, I joined the uh, Marin chapter of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. One of the prime movers in that organization lived down the street from me, and she invited me to join. I was 26 years old. The average age of the Marin chapter was 80, I think. <laughs> they, were old, they were old women. They were great old women. And um, they were very happy that I had joined. I think that they felt like I was their hope for the, maybe I am. I, uh, so I was very interested, and I went to meetings, and they said, we need to get, um, we get, we need to get more people to join, like you, younger. So let's have a tea and invite young women to join. So we'll all invite people. And um, so we all invited people, and we had a tea at Martha Brenner's house, I remember it. And women came, and they had refreshments, and then the program was to tell these women what they had done over the years, so uh, the history of the WILPF. And so someone began by saying, well, in 1918, we wrote to President Wilson, uh, dear President Wilson, we really feel that we should disarm and work towards disarmament. And I thought, oh, dear. Here it is, 40 years later, we are armed to the teeth. Uh, these women that we have invited are going to get all turned off to this because, look, they've been writing letters for 40 years and nothing has happened. <laughs> no one will join. But actually, I don't think that's true. I think it was a very good thing that they wrote the letters for 40 years. It did make a difference. It made a difference to them because they wrote the letters. And I really, now that I think back on them, I think it made it that they were the mothers or the grandmothers of the people who registered voters in Mississippi. And they were the mothers and the grandmothers of the people who marched in the 60s about Vietnam. They were the mothers or the grandmothers of the women's movement. They got to say what they meant. They got to speak out. There's a certain freedom in speaking out. You know, in the 60s, I marched a lot in peace marches. And then over the years, just, I guess, the times changed. I was doing other things. I didn't demonstrate so much with my body out in the street. Um, I think maybe I thought that my teaching was my demonstration. So a month or so ago, I marched in a march for a particular cause in Santa Rosa. I, I, thought, I thought, well, this is kind of a, an easy entry-level march because Santa Rosa is such a mild-mannered city. <laughs> And uh, the march itself was a, a mile long, and it was really festive. But I felt really good being out and getting counted. You know, I think whatever it is, that somehow 
when we manifest ourselves and get counted. In my family, voting was a religious act. Um, when I grew up in New York, my, my, my grandparents had all, my, and my father were born in Europe. My mother was born in this country, but just barely. Um, and for all of them, voting was a religious act. It was the freedom to get your voice heard, regardless of who you were. And it moved me so much. We didn't have absentee ballots in those days, so you had to bring your body to the polls. And my mother wasn't well, she was sick a lot. But, and regardless, the, the, the trip to vote was one of those things that the whole family did together. And I actually think of it as being one of the spiritually bonding, connecting, informing, energizing, um, um, encouraging experiences, spiritual experiences in my life. I used to go in the voting booth with my mother, and you'd pull a curtain around, and they had levers that you pulled. And in, in New York City, they had very complicated um, ballots, so lots of people running, and many, uh, many different parties running. And my parents both voted in a, um, in a very liberal way. My mother's somewhat more liberal than my father's, and in some cases much more liberal than my father's. And I remember standing with her in a, in a voting booth, I must have been eight years old, maybe nine or ten, and see, watch her pull the levers carefully, because you, you, know, you vote this way, this way, this way. The same way that we watch. Don't you watch when you're punching out your ballot? Don't you check to make sure that you don't punch the wrong hole? You check a few times? It's because it's a, sacred, it's a sacred act, you know? So here was my mother pushing, 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 pushing. And at one point, she did a lever down here, and then she went up and continued. And then she looked down at me, and she said, Don't tell Daddy. <laughs> but it was actually one of, and, not but, it was one of the formative moments of my whole life. You make up your own mind, you do what you want, you say your truth, it makes a difference, it counts, it's important to do it, it's important to speak your truth. She may be one of my principal spiritual teachers. I think of my spiritual teachers as those people who say to me, don't, give, don't lose faith, don't give up hope. It can still make a difference. I had a next-door neighbor who uh, died... Um, probably 20 years ago, more, um, here in Marin County. And uh, he was a physician, died of colon cancer, he died at home. And it takes a while to die of that, and it's a very uncomfortable and painful death, or at least it was then. And I'd visit him, and he'd show me all his medicines that were painkillers next to his bed, and he'd say, this is morphine. And uh, uh, he was a doctor, so he said, I, I can give it to myself. and." Uh, administer it as I need it. And um, he said, you know, I think about that I'm in so much pain and it's just a matter of days. He said, so every once in a while I think to myself, you know, I could just take a little extra morphine and be finished with this pain. He said, but every time I think about doing it, I think about, I have a nephew in Atlanta who just started a business and I have some good ideas about how he might advertise his business. So I call up my nephew in Atlanta and then he said, and then the pain gets really bad again. I think about uh, my sister's daughter, my niece in uh, Los Angeles, is having uh, marriage problems. 
And I know something about that. So I think I could call her up and I could talk to her a little bit about that. He said, and I keep thinking about who I could tell somebody something. He says, I keep thinking about taking a little bit more morphine, but then I don't do it because there's someone else that I'm thinking about. He said, every once in a while, I think to myself, I could really do it now because I've told everybody everything and I haven't thought of anybody. <laughs> he said, but then I think I might think of somebody else. <laughs> so I don't do it. And I think to myself, I think he was so lucky. You know, if I wanted to make it wonderfully spiritual, I'd say I think he was so wise that he really understood that in the moments that we connect outside of our own story, in the moment in which we remember that this one act of kindness in the middle of a whole difficult world having a lot of troubles makes a difference that every single connection makes a difference keeps the whole world afloat in some way it's a whole world of six and a half billion human beings with difficulties but individual human beings able to connect with acts of kindness then we stay in just for that moment I think that he was lucky, not that he was wise. I think he was lucky. I think Jesse did that intuitively. And I think what it meant is that he was alive his whole life. That sometimes our bodies are here, but we're really not here. And that the sense of connection is what really is the sense that draws us into life. I have a feeling, really, very much about the sense of reaching out and saying to somebody, hold my hand the sense that we could do that. And if we did it, we'd all hold each other into this amazing web of life in which we'd pass the sandwich around. We have only another minute or two to be together. Do an experiment with me. Don't look to see who's on either side of you. Just put your hand out. Hold somebody's hand. Might not be somebody on both sides of you. I'll have to hold both. I'll have to hold my own hand. I'll hold my hand, Carol. It's okay. Don't look to see who's there. It's nicer holding somebody's hand, isn't it? You can close your eyes if you want. Only a couple of times in my life, and for very minor things, I've needed to have an anesthetic. Always the very last thing I've said before falling asleep is hold my hand. He probably did too. Very hard to do this life alone. You imagine if we could do that, say, just hold somebody's hand and have it broadcast on a broadcasting system that broadcasts around the whole world simultaneously. We wouldn't even have to hold hands with people that are difficult for us. We'd just hold hands with the people who are not so difficult and near us. We wouldn't feel so frightened. The fear level in the world would go down. The sandwiches would get passed around a little better. Maybe we'd sit down and eat the sandwiches together and look at our families. You can hold. I'll read you Keeping Quiet by Pablo Neruda. Now we will all count to 12 and I'll keep still. For once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for a second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. 
we would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales, and the man gathering salt would not look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fires, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it is about. I want no truck with death. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us as when everything seems dead and later proves to be alive. Now I'll count to 12, and you keep quiet, and I'll go. So in these moments, this may be enough to count to 12. Let's make it our wish for the world that everyone remembers that just this act, just this day, just this moment, is redeemable. We can, in the place of despair or outrage or dismay, anger, we can say, I'm frightened, hold my hand. We can say, we're making a mess of this, let's do it over. We can say, I'm sorry. We can say, I have a new idea. We are really geared to kindness what makes us happy. Our own benevolent heart is really the place of redemption. We could redeem the world. Not any one of us, but all of us. We are incredibly lucky to have each other to say that to. So before I ring the bell, before you let go of anybody's hand, or simultaneously with the bell. Wish them well. Squeeze the hand. Let go. (laughs) And go home. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.